Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. To speak with you on a Sunday morning uh, when we gather together. Uh, So, furthering introduction, I am the chair of your missions committee here at Heritage. I work at a missions organization. I used to be a missions minister at another church, and I was a missionary for 13 years. So this will not surprise you at all, but this morning our sermon topic is, say it with me, missions. All right, so next time Brock forgets to watch over things closely, I'll try to talk about something else. But the truth is, I actually just love talking about this. Particularly, I love talking about it with my own church family. This is exciting to me. Now, it's, it's increasingly in the rear view, but I was, I was a student at Abilene Christian University, and one of the things that I remember, there aren't many things I remember, but that I remember from my preaching classes is they always told you, try to get one thing done. Every time you preach, aim at getting one thing done. Uh, and so in line with how obedient I have always been and teachable I am, we're gonna try to accomplish several things this morning. Uh, first, I want to update you on this thing that we call the MedRim Initiative. We've spoken to you about this many different times, uh, but right now our church is on the cusp of getting to send somebody into the MedRim to work with Muslims and unreached people groups. And so I want to just want to remind you of what that is. Then, what I'd like to do this morning is to lay some more stones in the foundation of Heritage becoming a better sending church. This is something that we're re-moving into. It's a part of our heritage, and now we're moving into it again of getting to send and oversee workers. This is something that's exciting. So, so among some of the things we're going to try to do, we're going to talk about the why of sending. Why does it matter that churches send workers? We're also going to talk some about the stuff that rattles around inside of, of workers' heads. In biblical language, we're going to borrow what April read to us today. We're going to speak about the, the missionary heart, soul, mind, and strength. So to begin with, we're going to talk a little bit about the MedRim Initiative, the Mediterranean Rim Initiative. This is a collection of cross-cultural workers. Really, it's a a team of teams who are scattered around the region that surrounds the Mediterranean, and they're all committed to making disciples among Muslims. This is actually a response to a move that God began years before any of us noticed. God was doing something in the Islamic world before any of us were paying attention to it. In our days, in our lifetime, friends, more Muslims have come to Jesus than in the previous several hundred years. God is moving among Islam, and he's calling his children to him. And this is a wave that, that, that we've finally started paying attention to, and we're, and we're coming alongside of it. So some of these teams have launched to work with refugees who have left war-torn Islamic countries and come to Western Europe, where we finally have access to them. Some of these teams have settled in Northern Africa or even the Near East, where Muslims are, are really settled in all areas of their life except in their hearts. And there's, there's a dissatisfaction, a, a, a growing dissatisfaction that's coming from God. And so workers are discovering that God, through his spirit and through dreams and visions, had already beat them there. They showed up and he was already there, it was hard at work, and he was just waiting on us to catch up, which happens pretty frequently in my experience. So Mission Resource Network, the place where I work, MRN, responded to this way by recruiting churches like us to send and workers to go One of the things we try to do is help them find each other, churches that want to send, workers that want to go. 
then once there, we're committed to, to having a community of people that receive care, that talk about strategy, that talk about resourcing, that talk about the ways that God is moving and encourage and build each other up with the things that God's doing in the Islamic world. These teams bless each other. And in fact, they're even able to, to hand new believers and new contacts off to each other as people move. One of the challenges of working with, with a mobile community like the refugee community is that as they are resettled, boy, it's really easy to lose touch with them. And so having teams scattered around the region helps address that problem. And so um, if you haven't blocked it completely out from your memory, back during our flannel graph series, I was able to speak, Brock, Brock lost track one more time. And he let me, let me even have the flannel graph at that time. And I talked to you about a story about Peter and Rhea who live in Athens and their friend Fred that came to Jesus who got resettled to Birmingham, England, where Peter and Rhea had friends, Ethan and Sarah, waiting to receive him and continue discipling him. These are the kinds of things that, that are happening around the region. And these are the kinds of things that Heritage has been blessed to be a part of already. Both Peter and Rhea and Ethan and Sarah have received funds from Heritage at different times. So this is the stuff that we're getting to step into. So I mentioned that I'm a part of your missions committee. Uh, we have progressed to the place where we are ready to follow God's leading into the Medrim and send a family, send, send, send someone that can become a part of the heritage family, someone that we can know and be known by. And so we've actually already begun interviewing people. We've, we've interviewed a couple of candidates and we're moving forward in that process. And I'm gonna say more about that later, but we're also deciding that beginning next year, we're gonna put our money where our mouth is and we're asking you to help us do that, to help put your money where your mouth is. We'll, we'll come back to that at the end. Second, I wanna come back to a vocabulary lesson that I've, that I've had with you before. Um, and we're gonna, I'm gonna keep coming back to it. You've probably noticed that I don't always call missionaries, missionaries. Uh, call them workers, cross-cultural workers, servants. And that's because so many of our global family that are serving cross-culturally are doing so in places where the stuff they're doing is technically illegal, puts them at risk, and it puts the people that they're serving at risk. Uh, if they're found out. So if, if host governments are forced, if host governments discover what they're actually doing or more accurately, if they're forced to deal with what they really knew the whole time they were doing anyway, then they're put at risk of being usually just deported, but also the people they serve, the believers that don't have the option of leaving. Those are the ones that bear the brunt of that. And so part of becoming a good sending church is keeping those that we send and serve safe even with things as simple as the, our, our choice of vocabulary. All right, so before we get to what makes workers tick, to what goes on inside of their hearts and minds and souls and their strength, I wanna consider why we send them. The reason for that is pretty simple. It's what churches do. For as long as churches have been a thing, they've been sending workers. So the church at Antioch is known for, for a few firsts. Um, it's the place where we were first known as Christians, which is a pretty great thing. It is also the first sending church. And so this morning, I wanna take a look at, at that process. This is, we're gonna be jumping around a little bit in the book of Acts. Now the book of Acts is the fifth book in what we call the New Testament. It comes right on the heels of those four gospels, these, these stories that, that, that are told about Jesus from four different perspectives. And the book of Acts continues that story. It continues to tell what Jesus is doing through his Holy Spirit, which is now in his disciples. And so that's where we're gonna be. So I wanna begin by looking at Acts 13, one to four. 
This is, this is the word of the Lord in Acts 13. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius of Cyrene, um, Manaen, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping, while the leaders were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. Then the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus and the story continues. So there's a couple things I'd like us to notice here before we, before we continue with our story. First of all, the leaders were the ones who were doing the worshiping and the fasting. They were, they were prophets, they were teachers, they were people with money. This guy, Menaean, we don't know anything about him except that he grew up with Herod. And you don't grow up with Herod if you don't come from money. These were the people that were worshiping and fasting who heard from the Holy Spirit and then actually had the courage to do something about it. It's one of the things that I love is when I, when I work with churches, when I get to be a part of a church where when leaders hear the Holy Spirit, they have the courage to do what they've heard. But then they, they fasted and they prayed and they sent them off. But one of the things that I want you to notice, and it's the reason why I kept reading on through verse four. In verse three, we are told they fasted, they prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. According to verse 4, who did the sending? The Holy Spirit did. It's this beautiful place that they have come to of walking so in step with the Father that they've arrived at this place where they can say in one breath, we did this thing. And in the very next breath, the Holy Spirit did this thing. There, it's, it's a beautiful, sweet moment when we come to places like that where we're able to say, we have heard from the Lord and we're doing what He wants us to do. Scripture doesn't record this level of certainty very often. We've got one here, we've got one a couple of chapters later that really bookend the stuff that we're talking about this morning. But really most of the time that we're told that people have done this successfully, it's when we're talking about missions, it's when we're talking about cross-cultural work, when it's talking about obedience in disciple-making. That's where we see this confluence of our will and the Holy Spirit's will overlaid with each other. So these, these first sent ones, Barnabas and Saul, who eventually become Paul and Barnabas, the, the emphasis shifts eventually, they go and they do some great stuff. Over the next little while, you're gonna find that they confronted magicians, they preached, they quoted cool Old Testament scriptures, they had some success in some places, in other places they got run out of the city, but even in that city where they got run out, they saw the disciples filled with joy. At one point, they got confused for Greek gods. And in my field, we call that a fail. If you get confused for the very things you're preaching against, you did something wrong. And one of the things, church, that I wanna tell you is that in my 13 years of life as a missionary, not once was I confused for a Greek God, never. So we don't actually hear about Antioch again um, until some folks actually show up from Antioch and at first you might think that's gonna be a site visit. They might be coming to encourage, but in fact, they find Paul, they stone him, they drag him out of the city, leaving him for dead, which is a great example of how not to visit your workers on the field. There's all sorts of stuff we learn in scripture. So now we're gonna skip ahead to 1421. They, that's, that's Barnabas and Paul, they preached the good news in that city, the city of Derbe, and they won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, all places that they had been before. 
strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. I think that what we see here is really this first furlough, this first assignment where they're not done with their work, but they are coming back to the people that sent them. And this is a beautiful moment in the sending of workers, when you actually have the chance to receive your workers back and bless them as well as be blessed by them. It's something that we're going to get to experience in the, in the future. We're going to get to send and then receive back. And it's such a gift. But I want you to think about just the gift that this church received. Paul and Barnabas had a message. They had a word from the Lord and they came back and they shared it with this church and they needed to hear it. So part of being a good sending church is that once you've sent and people come back, you need to listen to them because they've probably heard from the Lord along the way. So we're going to wrap our story up. 1426. From Atalia, they sailed back to Antioch. We're going back to the beginning where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and they reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. They did it. They completed the first missionary journey. The church welcomed them back. They celebrated what God had done and they hosted them for a long time. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to pay attention to the rest of the story. We don't, we're not going to take the time to, to go on and read Acts 15, but the story continues. Those workers in the church that sent them at that point dove into the main theological controversy facing the church of its day. It was a question about identity. It was a question about who's in the church and who's out of the church. What does it mean to be a Christian? The group discernment, it's this beautiful group discernment in chapter 15 that led to a richer understanding of the grace of God for all the nations that matters so much to all of us that are not Jewish happened in part because of the experiences that these workers had and because they brought that back to a church that listened to them. We know from earlier in chapter 14, there were plenty of people in Antioch that wanted to stone Paul and kill him, but the church listened and instead I don't believe it's an overstatement to say that the gates of the church were thrown wide open to the nations, at least in part, because the Antioch church was willing to send and then actually listened when the people came back. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we're preparing to do what we're doing. It's why we send, because we will be better equipped to face our own ever-evolving world when we give ear to and understand those who've actually ventured out into it and have come back to tell the stories. So with that said, that's, that's, that's some of the why. Now what I'd like to do with, with the rest of our time this morning, I'd like to help you take a little closer look at, at the stuff that makes cross-cultural workers unique. Um, beginning to understand the people that we're a part of sending is, is kind of that next step. It's that, it's that next level, and it's gonna make us better at sending them, but I think it's also gonna, it's also gonna show us some stuff about ourselves as well. So to do that, like I mentioned already, we're going to use those divisions in Scripture from Mark 12, the heart, mind, soul, and strength. So we'll start with understanding the heart of cross-cultural workers. Now the truth is, I am a different person for having loved and been loved by people in a different country. 
Some of my very best friends on this earth do not speak a lick of English and have no desire to do so. In many respects, some of the people that know me best, that know my interior world, live in Burkina Bay villages. They live in these villages in a little corner of West Africa that most people have never heard of. They're the ones that walked with me as I turned the corner fresh out of grad school. They're the ones that struggled with my bride and I through five miscarriages on the field. They are the ones who prayed our children into existence. They are the ones who rejoiced with us when God gave us three kids in three years. And then they're the ones that prayed with me that those same floodgates would shut back. They, these are the ones, these are the ex-pagans that I learned from what it really means to be living in grace. These are the friends who told me in a season of, of some pretty scary political unrest in Burkina Faso that if things went south, if things, things took a bad turn and I had been taken, that they would keep my wife and children safe for me and get them out. It's the kind of stuff that changes forever how you think about refugees and asylum seekers once you've been told something like that. Now, I like to say that I have a peculiar patriotism. I grew up outside of Shepherd Air Force Base, just up the road in Wichita Falls, Texas. I grew up in a church that was full of pilots that were stopping by for their training there at Shepherd. I, I came to love the Blue Angels as a little guy. In fact, I remember that weekend where I saw the Blue Angels in the morning and my dad and I saw Ario Speedwagon and the Beach Boys in the afternoon. I, I remember these kinds of things. They, they, shape, they shape me. I, I tear up still at the singing of the national anthem and my passport, friends, really matters to me. That little blue book is important to me, particularly when I'm outside these borders. But I've also got two sons born on Burkina Bay soil and a daughter that really wishes she had been. Uh, when they tease her about the fact that she's only got that one sole passport, she just reminds them she's the only one that can be president. <laughs> I care really deeply about what happens in Burkina Faso and my heart breaks that terrorism rocks that country more than weekly, that currently one in five, 20% of that country have been internally displaced by terrorism that they've had not one, but two military coups in the last 18 months and a couple of failed ones, and nobody in the American media cares enough to say anything about it. Now, most of the time, my two patriotisms don't really come in conflict with each other. Every once in a while, that happens. But for the worker's heart, it runs really deeply. I want you to listen to what a friend of mine who served in central China had to say. He said, my heart is in two different countries, and I feel really at home in neither which makes my soul long for heaven. His peculiar patriotism is such because he understands that his real allegiance is to a greater kingdom. It's neither to these United States nor to China, which is something, by the way, that our Lord Jesus gets. We're told that that son of man had no particular place to lay his head. Those who are loved and love different countries and people and languages and cultures over time develop a love for the God that created all of them. And they, they, they want to be in places where his rule is already recognized and they work to make it on earth as it already is in heaven. And that's one of the things that these workers bring to their sending churches is this understanding that we're not earthly creatures that are just dragging our chains around trying to scrape our way into heaven. We are sons and daughters of a king and we're walking home and we're trying to bring as much company along on the walk as possible. So that's the heart. That's the heart of a worker. Let's talk about the mind. Let's talk about the mind of cross-cultural workers. Now this is, this is the fun stuff. This is, where, this is where I get to tell some stories on myself, 
some of my other worker friends about our weirdness and help you begin to understand a little bit why we are weird the way that we are, specifically, not so that you make fun of us, but so that you can bring a blessing to them. So to begin with, I wanna go back to my buddy that lived in China. He also wrote me in that same email, we have to be a little bit off to do what we do. And that's okay. And I love that my sending church thinks that's okay. Good sending churches embrace the quirkiness of their own church family. And I'm talking this morning to my own church family. I understand we got quirks here. They embrace the quirkiness of their own church family and they extend grace to each other and to their workers. So I have felt this weirdness. On, on return to the States, I felt this weirdness. One good example of this. When I moved back to America, I landed in Alabama as a missions minister and I was going to be a minister at a church of Christ in the deep South, which means I need a suit. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to buy the first suit that I bought since junior high. So I had heard about the discount Dillard store in the mall, the kind of place that a guy on a missions minister salary can walk in and buy a suit. So I walked in and I tried. I really did, I promise I tried. But I was a man who was pushing 40 that did not understand suit measurements. I didn't understand why when I pulled on a pair, a pair of pants that were my size, they were like nine inches too long and unhemmed. I didn't, I didn't get that. It was crowded, it was dark, people were hunting for sales and I panicked. And so I ran out of the store and I pulled my flip phone out of my pocket because in 2015, who needed a, a smartphone? That was just silly. And I called my wife, Melissa, from outside the store and I told her she's gotta wrap up and come meet me outside and she, pastorally oriented the way that she is, said, pull yourself together, there's sales up in here. Um, missionary women are sometimes a lot tougher than their men. But whether it is, whether it's picking out a deodorant or a breakfast cereal or stylish pants, or it's standing next to somebody in a at, a, at a urinal and trying to talk back to them when they're actually talking on their Bluetooth headset because you've never seen one of those before, which happened three times, missionary minds have a hard time fitting in. You've probably noticed if you've gotten to spend any time with them that they eat differently. They talk differently. They spend their money differently. They watch football differently. They watch a different kind of football. They worship and they pray differently. So the question is, why is that the case? So to help you understand that, I'd like to tell you a story about shapes. So I want you to imagine this morning that you are a triangle. You are born a triangle. You live in triangle land. We actually have a picture of triangle land here. There you are, you're the blue one, by the way. So you are a triangle who lives in triangle land. You speak triangleese, you go to a triangle school, you eat triangle food, you play triangle sports, you watch triangle news. Uh, you live with mom and dad triangle, you visit granny and papa triangle. You also sing songs about a triangle God. When you look at scripture, you look at scripture, of course, through the eyes of a triangle. And although you would probably never have the words for this, in your own mind, you probably think God is a triangle. That's okay, you've grown up that way. And so you're accustomed to seeing his triangleness. Well, I want you to imagine one day, this triangle-ish God calls you to get on an airplane. And what he does is he sends your little triangle self over to circle land. Now you show up in circle land with all of these visions about how you've come to save the circles. And so you come running hard at him, and what happens when a triangle runs hard at a circle? It kind of pokes him. And, and, and so you've shown up wanting to make friends and wanting to love people well, but the stuff that makes you you, the way that you, the way you organize your day, the, the way you organize your schedule, the, the way that you talk, it pokes into the people that you've come to serve. 
You don't intend to do that, but you wind up wounding them occasionally. The, the friends that you've come to make and love and serve, you accidentally offend them. You don't mean to, but you, you do just because you're a triangle. And over time, the, the, the circles really kind of start to irritate you a little bit. Um, circle food is, is boring. Circle traffic is awful. Uh, there, in fact, there, there are no rules, it seems. You don't understand why everybody takes a break from noon until 3.30 in the afternoon. There, there's no reason for that kind of thing. And the circles just roll through life differently than you do, and it irritates you. And then probably the most disturbing part of it is those few circles who actually do take the time to listen to you and to hear about God, they don't look at God like he's a triangle. In their minds, God's a circle because they're made in his image too. And when they start reading scripture, they don't read it like a kid that grew up in Wichita Falls, Texas in a small conservative church Christ. They read it like a circle. And some of that kind of weirds you out a little bit, freaks you out a little bit. You're not sure how to handle those things. So you spend a lot of time praying about it. And if you stay long enough, and if you make good enough friends, and if you're open to what the spirit is doing inside of you, the truth is you'll never be a circle. You weren't born a circle, you're never gonna be one. But by the grace of God, you just might be changed into a hexagon. And that, friends, is the good stuff. That's, that's the years of fruitful service, the years of family in a different country, the years of being comfortable in a different language and in a different culture. Those are the years where you walk with circles as they say to themselves, we used to do it this way, now we love Jesus, now how are we gonna authentically be circles and authentically Christ followers at the same time? That's the good stuff. You can roll with them. You, when you dance with them, everybody knows you're not a circle, but you can, you move with them. Years of fruitful service, it's a gift. But then another funny thing happens. One day, this God of yours that you're now following, that you now see from a triangle and a circle perspective, puts you back on a plane. And where do you move back to? You move back to triangle land. Okay, so now you're a hexagon bumping around triangle land. And the stuff that used to make you you now pokes into you. Your friends and family can't wait for you to get back. Everybody says, welcome home. You just left home and you've come back to a place that changed. And you, 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 you can't put words to it, but you've changed also. And all, and, and all the well-meaning people who will ask a week after you've been back home, are you settled? Uh, it just feels pokey. It's poke into you. And when you come to church, church is tough. You're back at the church that sent you. You love them. You think they're great. All the songs are written from a triangle perspective, and it just feels one-dimensional to you. The truth is, you're going to get more triangly with time. I'm way, believe it or not, I am way more triangly than I used to be. But one of the realities is, is that if you, get to, if you have the gift of being loved and loving another place, you're never going to be fully a triangle again. That's the mind of cross-cultural workers. All right, quickly, let's talk about the soul. The soul of a cross-cultural worker, in, in an effort to show you that I am becoming more triangle-y, I have a place here in my sermon where I have a little bit of alliteration. Three words, they all start with D. First word that you need to understand that the worker's soul is delight. 
workers understand the delight of being squarely in the middle of God's plan for their lives. Now you need to hear this does not mean that they always enjoy what they do or they like the people that they're with or that they like themselves. Like all of us, cross-cultural workers have bad days. A friend of mine who left the field after a dozen years in Tanzania explained that his overseeing church helped love and support him through a whole bunch of other Ds, doubts and disappointments and even depression. But nevertheless, there was always a deep abiding sense of God's pleasure because he knew that for that season of his life, he was doing what God created him to do. Secondly, you need to understand the word dry when it comes to being a cross-cultural worker. The support system the mentors, the resources, the church family, the regular family, that all brought someone to the place where a church would look at them and say, man, you got what it takes, let's send you. All those things that made them that person, right when they need them the most, those are the things they get yanked away from them as they land on the field. And so they show up and they're dry. Now, now online resources, podcasts, being able to watch Heritage Online, all of those things help. But friend, you all know, there is no substitute for being with the people that breathe, that breathe life into you. So the work cross-cultural workers are often dry. And finally, you need to understand the word discipleship if you're gonna understand cross-cultural workers. Here at Heritage, we talk a lot about it. In fact, you might get tired of hearing us talk about discipleship. We say all the time that we're about leading people into growing relationships with Jesus. That's, that's what the ball game is. And it's what everybody everywhere ought to be about. But I think one of, the, one of the problems we have with discipleship is I think we make the word more complicated than it actually is. So I'd like to give you just a little bit, another little framework to think about discipleship. It's an easy way to remember it. Discipleship is a three-step process of engaging the word. And that's with a little w, that's, that's this thing, the word of God. You would read it, and then once you've read it, you read it again. And then once you've read it again, take a third swing at it. And as you read it, expect to come away changed. Expect that God might have something for you to do differently or think or be differently coming out of that. Secondly, you follow the word. So you read the word, lowercase w, follow the word, capital W, that's Jesus. All that stuff that you see happening in scripture, all the stuff that Jesus does, shape your life after his. Pray the way that Jesus prayed. Care about the kind of people that Jesus prayed about. Position yourself in between people the way that Jesus positioned himself in between people. Surround yourself with the kind of people that Jesus surrounded himself with and give them access to your life. And then, Go into the world, world, into the world. Read the word, follow the word, go into the world. And I want you to think that it means you. Jesus wasn't kidding when he told all of us to do this. Now your world might just be across the street. It might be at your school. It might be at your workplace. It might be in your church, but every one of us are to go into the world and lead others into growing relationships with Jesus. And finally, and this is, this is where we're going to land our plane, I want to talk briefly about the missionary strength. I kind of think this one comes last in the list because so little, little, little of it is our own. The cross-cultural worker's strength can really be summed up in one word, as Bob Goff puts it. That word is with. The first workers, those 11 guys that were standing on top of a mountaintop looking at their Lord being taken up into heaven and leaving them alone, had no chance of success except for a promise that Jesus had made that he fulfilled just a little while later that he would be with them. His promise to be with them 
turned a moment of this devastating abandonment into a reassuring, eternal, forever presence. Every worker that is sent out is sent to do an impossible task. Can't be done. All cross-cultural workers are tackling insurmountable challenges. We Johnsons, we were fine. We were great. We were, we were snot-nosed and green, and we didn't really know what we were doing, but God used us anyway. And we had zero chance of success had the Holy Spirit not shown up. The MedRim Initiative is full of great men and women who are running hard after the Father who have zero chance of success unless Jesus shows up. And one of the things that workers bring to the table is this challenge that they bring to their sending churches to ask the question, when's the last time we tried something that we knew would fail if Jesus didn't show up? Their stories, their challenges, their encouragements can serve to push us as the heritage family to try stuff that we know will fail if Jesus doesn't show up. So I'm excited that we're going to get to send. I'm excited that there's a family out there. We don't know who they are exactly yet, but I'm excited there's a family out there that gets to be loved by us. My family's been loved by y'all, and we're being loved by you even as we speak. And I'm glad we're going to get to pour that out onto somebody else who is pouring themselves out on an unreached people group. That's exciting to me. All right, so I mentioned that I was going to circle back to our, our year-end giving. Something very exciting is happening this year. So our, our top tier of our year-end giving is always about discipleship. It's about discipling the sons and daughters of this church. It is about our student ministry and about our little guys' ministry. Over the last couple of years, we have added small amounts of budget to, to help people like Peter and Rhea and Sarah and Ethan as Fred moved in between them. We, we've, we've had a few things that we've been able to do that way. What I'm so excited about this year is because we're gonna be launching somebody from the family of heritage out, it means we're giving equal shares of our top tier to the children of this church, men and kids ministry, and to work among unreached people groups. To me, that says something big. When a church says that we're going to spend the same amount of money on our youth group that we do on sending out workers. That's an exciting thing. So therefore, your leadership this year is asking that our tier one giving be $75,000. 25 of that is for our student ministry, 25 of that's for the little guys, and 25 of that is to go towards reaching an unreached people group somewhere in the Islamic world. And friends, that's exciting to me. That's something that gets me pretty excited about talking about my church family. I'm thankful to our leadership who has spent that time praying and fasting and listening to the Holy Spirit and saying, Okay, we'll do it. So I want to, I want to wrap up this time together by, by speaking a blessing over you, but I'd like to also remind you that there are going to be prayer warriors around the perimeter of this, of this space. If you would like to receive prayer this morning, then they're going, to be, they're going to be going ahead and taking their positions now, and people are going to be there to receive you and to pray for you. And so if you'd like to be prayed this, for this morning, head over to the perimeter and, and some of the leaders, some of the shepherds of this church will be there to pray with you. You can do that while we're singing our next song. So I'm gonna pray for you and then after that, we'll sing our song. So Father, I come to you right now in the name of the Son of Man who had no place to lay his head, but came anyway. I pray right now for the Heritage Church. I pray that this would be a family who understands unequivocally and without a doubt that we have a greater allegiance than to any one country, that we are citizens of your kingdom, that you are our king, that you are our Lord, and that you are our father. 
Father, my prayer is that we will become, over time, better citizens of the kingdom. My prayer is that we will become a better sending church, that we will have more of a vision for moving forward. My prayer, Father, is that Heritage will continue to dream dreams that are you-sized, that we will not allow ourselves to be limited by praying for the things that we think we can pull off on our own strength. But God, I pray that we will be inspired and emboldened and brave enough to do some of those things that'll only happen if Jesus shows up. So Father, please, show up. Be who you are. We pray these things in the Christ. Amen.